the presentation of anarchism, anarchism. as social philosophy which aims at the emancipation, economic, social, political, and spiritual of the human race. The Anarchist Essays is brought to you by Loughborough University's Anarchism Research Group. For more information on the ARG, see the link in the show notes or follow us on Twitter at ARGLBORO. Shame Economies by Christopher Powell. I'll begin with a land acknowledgement. My name is Christopher John Powell, and I'm a white settler Canadian speaking to you from what is now called Toronto in the Dish With One Spoon territory. My mother's parents came to this land from Ukraine, and my father's ancestors came from England, Scotland, and Germany. The Dish With One Spoon is a treaty between the Anishinaabe, the Mississaugas, and the Haudenosaunee that binds them to share the territory and protect the land. Subsequent Indigenous nations and peoples and Europeans and all newcomers have been invited into the treaty as a spirit of friendship in a spirit of friendship and respect. But Europeans have not come to this land as invited guests. They have come and settled as colonizers. And the Canadian state, while engaging in public gestures of reconciliation, continues to pursue policies that extend the colonization of the land and the erasure of its first peoples. So this is an example of a thing that we do in Canada called a land acknowledgement. And land acknowledgements are controversial because it's very easy for them to be token gestures, these empty self-congratulatory performances of neoliberal multicultural inclusiveness. But at their best, they can challenge white settlers to consider their own relations to the historical process of genocidal settler colonialism. And by that same token, land acknowledgements can provoke a feeling of shame for people who identify as Canadian. Although shame is an emotion, one that we feel inwardly and often hide from others, shame is also intensely political. For instance, right now in North America, there are loud voices complaining about being shamed for being white. Almost half of US states have banned or have considered banning critical discussions of racism from their schools and other public institutions. Donald Trump and other right-wing populists make a big show out of telling white people that they have nothing to be ashamed of. And even within progressive movements, white fragility is a real problem. I've seen white people who identify as progressive explode with defensiveness at the slightest hint that they need to incorporate a stronger anti-racist analysis into their thinking or practice. And I felt that defensiveness in myself when I'm reading or listening to the works of critical scholars writing from racialized subject positions. White people are feeling very sensitive to shame about whiteness. And it's not just whiteness, also trans rights, uh, social democracy, other egalitarian projects. Some folks say that the left has gone down the wrong path with its cultural politics, that we need to find a way to pursue social justice without provoking shame in white people. And I'll agree that shame is not an end in itself, but for reasons I'll explain, I don't think it's really possible to achieve social equality without provoking some shame in people with privilege. I'm going to argue that shame is not just an emotion that individuals feel in their bodies, Instead, shame is relational. And when you change social relations, that's gonna have effects on who feels shame and for what. I'll argue that there's a kind of economy of shame in all societies. Shame circulates through social relations, establishing and reinforcing social bonds. But in modern state societies, this economy of shame takes a particular form, one that reinforces social hierarchies. And struggles for social equality involve struggles 
to redistribute shame, to reprogram the, sh the system that produces and distributes shame. My argument is based on the work that I've done as a sociologist of genocide. And for the sociologists in the room, I draw heavily on the theory of state formation that was proposed by German sociologist Norbert Eliash. As a genocide scholar, I ask myself, what specific mechanism connects an individual's self-esteem to the abstract machine of state sovereignty? Eliash gives us a partial answer to that question by analyzing how the formation of modern sovereign states fed into and was reinforced by changes in the structure of people's everyday lives. But Eliash's work was also Eurocentric and androcentric, so I had to deconstruct his theory and then reconstruct it along more critical lines. If you want, you can read that deconstruction in my book, Barbaric Civilization, A Critical Sociology of Genocide, which was published all the way back in 2006. But for today, I'll skip all the details, the technical back work, and dive straight into the point. Now, one kind of scholastic or theoretical point that I will make is to mention that Eliash's sociology and my own work is based on a relational conception of self and society. Now, the dominant view of human and non-human existence that prevails in Western culture is what Mustafa Emmerbeyer calls substantialist. And that's in his essay, a Manifesto for a Relational Sociology, which you can look up if you want to. In a substantialist worldview, the world is made of substances, of things that exist independently of each other. So the individual human self is imagined as a thing that exists on its own, apart from other humans and non-humans. And society is a different thing or substance outside the self, and somehow those two substances interact. We see this in the classical enlightenment theorizing of Rene Descartes, prominently, also Rousseau, Hobbes, Locke, and so on. And we also see this in classical anarchists like Godwin, Stirner, and Prudhomme, who assume that there's an essential individual that exists prior to or apart from social relations outside of history uh, that's struggling to be free. A relational view, on the other hand, sees humans as always interdependent with other humans and non-humans always interdependent. This interdependence can be cooperative or it can be conflictual, but we're never autonomous and we never can be. What we call autonomy in our society is actually a particular configuration of relations in which our interdependencies with others have been made invisible. And not coincidentally, this invisibilization or erasure of interdependencies works to naturalize the subject position of the white male bourgeois subject. And one implication of a relational view is that emotions are not just something that happens inside of a person. Emotion is a part of a process of relating with others. We feel joy or sadness or pride or shame in relation to something that someone else has done or will do or might do. These relations are part of what makes up the self. And so the human self changes as social relations change. So with that theoretical framework in mind, I'll present to you my model or account of shame economies, and I'll present it in the form of a story. The story begins in what today we call France in the ninth century of the Common Era. The Carolingian Empire has just collapsed, and with it, any kind of centralized political authority is gone. The land is governed by a lot of local warlords, each of whom controls his own little bit of territory and each warlord maintains his control through direct physical violence. 
there's no higher authority to back him up and also no higher authority to rein him in. So he has to be ready to explode into violence at a moment's notice, whenever his authority is challenged. This warlord is not a human being in a state of nature, according to Enlightenment theorists. Uh, he's not expressing an uninhibited Freudian id. He's adapted to a particular set of social relations. He's been socialized. And in particular, his survival depends on his ability to charge into battle without fear. Because if he loses in battle, his enemy may humiliate or torture or murder him. And if he wins, he can do the same. So over the course of centuries, these warlords whose emotions and uh, minds are configured in this way by the social relations that they're in, these warlords fight each other. And gradually, the more powerful lords subdue the weaker ones. But these battles don't always end with the death of the loser. Quite often, the stronger warlord demands fealty, and the weaker one agrees to pay tribute and provide military service to the stronger one. What happens here is that the final blow of the battle, so to speak, is deferred indefinitely. As long as the vassal pays tribute to the Lord, the Lord will let him live. The vassal pays deference to the Lord, which defers the Lord's violence and establishes a difference between them, a difference between uh, a relation of difference between vassal and suzerain. Now this deference is ongoing. The vassal has to travel to the suzerain's court for the part of each year. And at court, he has to restrain his violent habits. He has to learn how not to give offense. He has to cultivate favor from the suzerain and also from other vassals at court. There's power and wealth to be gained or lost, depending on how well one can relate to one's peers. And this is challenging because that habitual readiness for explosive violence that I talked about, that's still in there. That's part of the vassal's psyche or habitus, as Eliash would say. It's that readiness for explosive violence is how he maintains dominance back on his own fiefdom. So the vassal develops a double self. The old warlord is still in there, but now wrapped or layered in a second courtier self, a self who knows how to bow and curtsy, how to dress, uh, how to shake hands, what's the right way to use a spoon, all the manners of court. So let's fast forward now through hundreds of years. Let's press the tape uh, and speed up. The courts of the regional suzerains gradually give way to the courts of sovereign kings. And at the courts of sovereign kings, rich bourgeois start to be admitted into court society where they learn the manners of aristocrats as they compete alongside the landed aristocracy for social privilege. And in the towns and cities, the petite bourgeois and middle-class professionals and tradesmen emulate the manners of the bourgeois. And uh, the, this layer of society is in turn emulated by the more prosperous workers. And what's being disseminated here is more than just a code of conduct, more than just a set of arbitrary rules about how to eat and how to dress and so on. It's a structure of feeling maintained by a particular set of power relations. And these power relations reproduce themselves over time. So imagine, for instance, that our uh, civilized warlord slash vassal is a noble at the court of uh, Louis XIV, the Sun King. He, the vassal wants to speak to the king about a legal case involving his family estates, for instance. And to speak to the king, he has to kneel, he has to cast his eyes downwards, he has to use obsequious flattery, he has to uh, denigrate himself uh, so as to elevate this other human being into the position of 
absolute sovereign, a position that's fictive and real at the same time. The king demands this deference because anyone who doesn't give it to him might be challenging his authority. And the courtiers give that deference to the king because their position at court, their privilege in the wider society depends on the king's favor. Their physical life might not be at stake, but their social existence is. So they do two things to compensate for the shame of submitting to the king and prostrating themselves before him. First, they accept that the king, quote unquote, really is superior to themselves. That is, they weave the idea and the practice of regal supremacy into their own sense of who they are, their own selfhood. There's no shame in bowing to a person who we all agree really is our superior. And second, they demand similar deference from those below themselves in the hierarchy. This sets in motion a kind of economy of shame and esteem. The king demands deference to maintain his sovereignty. Courtiers pay this deference, and in the process they accept shame, which they then try to pass on to others by demanding a, a similar tribute of esteem from those who are below them in the social order, and the process repeats itself on downwards until there's nowhere left for it to go. Among equals, courtiers fight over who defers to whom, and they do this in multiple arenas, one of which is etiquette. So gestures without intrinsic material stakes become politically significant. Say, for instance, one courtier uses the wrong fork at dinner. Another courtier points out his mistake, and the first one is shamed. He's humiliated. He's become a bumpkin who doesn't know correct table manners. His selfhood has changed in a way that he experiences as damaging. So to repair that damaged self, he learns the correct use of all the forks and he waits for his chance to correct somebody else. And so shame circulates, it passes on from person to person. Every society must have some kind of shame economy. Shame is what happens when a person violates the shared norms of a group. That's not intrinsically bad. The painful feeling of shame motivates a person to repair themselves by repairing their relation to the group. And in the process, those social norms get strengthened and affirmed. But in an elitist social order with elitist norms created by, for instance, the institution of sovereignty, shame operates to naturalize and intensify social inequalities and oppressions. We can see this more easily if we imagine what an egalitarian shame economy looks like. Egalitarian shame economies do exist, both historically in cultures without centralized political authority and in relationships today among friends and in communities, communities where nobody is allowed to stand above someone else. In an egalitarian social network, a person might be shamed for putting themselves above others, for abusing power, and shame brings us down to level. It restores our relative equality with those around us. But by virtue of this, in an egalitarian shame economy, nobody is systematically shamed or exalted for who they are. Now, I've been talking all along about the social order of European feudalism, which gets projected out into the world through imperialism and settler colonialism. And my argument is also that this social order gets carried over into modern societies. From the 16th century to the 19th, sovereignty as the personal domination of one warlord over all the others slowly transforms into sovereignty of the state as a durable institution whose individual personnel come and go. And then the democratic revolutions or the liberal democratic revolutions of the 18th and 19th centuries, they abolish the person of the monarch 
but they retain the pyramidal structure of political power. And so in a sense, the king lives on, and I'm gendering him male because it's a patriarchal kind of power. The king lives on in two ways, as an imagined personification of the ideals of society, the nation, or the people, what I call the imagined sovereign, picking up on Benedict Anderson's notion of imagined community. And the king also lives on in the elitist structure of the shame economy through which social norms are produced and enforced. In the history of modern revolutions, over and over again, we see the king overthrown by a coalition of different actors, only for that coalition to break down and a single ruler to emerge. Now, there's many reasons this happens. For opponents of the revolution are working to overturn it. The revolutionaries themselves have social privileges that they want to maintain. Egalitarian decision-making is complex and full of uncertainties, and we're not used to it. But one reason that revolutions against authoritarianism so often collapse into new forms of authoritarianism, and I'm looking at you, Lenin, is that individuals shaped by centuries of elitist culture have difficulty putting their egalitarian aspirations into practice. Authoritarianism, authoritarianism isn't natural, but neither is egalitarianism. Both are complex clusters of learned cultural practices. For a person socialized into the norms of European sovereignty, deferring to an external authority feels right. Deep within us lurks a fear of what will happen if nobody's in charge. And the shame economy has made social difference seem dangerous. Every difference feels like a potential fight over who will dominate and who will submit. Part of us is still that warlord at court who wants to be king because that's the only way he can imagine not being subject to the king. And if he can't be king, let the king be somebody just like himself, somebody he can identify with. So the king finds his throne again because even when we cut off his head, we keep him alive within ourselves. Now, right now in North America, social struggles against white and male supremacy often take the form of what's called cultural politics, or it has less flattering names, of course, but I want to be respectful here. Some socialists will argue that cultural politics is neoliberal, that it's too individualized, it's oriented to consumption instead of being collective and challenging relations of production. And there's some merit to this. This is true definitely in some instances, but I think it misses a deeper transformation that's potentially taking place. We tend to think of domination as something concentrated in macro institutions like the sovereign state, big, conspicuous, visible. But the power of the state emerges out of an economy of deference and shame that extends through all of society, incorporating every person and the minutest interactions. The shame economy shapes our interactions with each other and our relations with ourselves. And in this economy, shame flows from the top down from the wealthy to the middle class to the poor, from cis-hetero men to women, queer and trans folk, from white bodies to racialized bodies, from the normatively able to the quote-unquote disabled, and so on. Each of us constructs our sense of personal identity and selfhood from our position in these flows of shame and esteem. And movements like Black Lives Matter and Me Too and the fight for trans lives challenge this economy. They work to redistribute shame and esteem by blocking the transfer of shame from superior to inferior subjects. People with privilege 
feel shame in response to these movements because now they can't as easily pass down the shame that they are receiving from those above them. In its moderate form, anti-supremacist cultural politics aims at an emotional equivalent of social democracy. Uh, just like social democracy leaves capitalism intact but taxes the rich in order to pay for a decent standard of living for the poor, uh, a moderate uh, anti-supremacist cultural politics uh, opposes or redistributes shame from the, the shamed to the privileged without necessarily challenging that underlying economy that's producing these inequalities. So the more radical turn, and we, I think we see hints of this everywhere, is to reprogram the core logic of the shame economy. So what replaces a sovereign shame economy? How does one imagine an egalitarian shame economy? I think there's other people more directly involved in social struggles who could give a better answer to this question than I could. But since I'm here on the table, I'll say, uh, for me personally, it involves reorienting our moral logic. It means shifting from accountability to, to abstract norms to accountability to other people. Even egalitarian norms like justice or democracy or socialism tend towards defining the moral good as deference to a higher authority. And then we compete to see who can be higher in the favor of this imagined sovereign that is justice, for instance. These norms also tend to enable a false universalism that makes us think that if we understand justice, then we understand what it is everywhere and for everyone. Uh, papering over the deep differences produced by intersecting oppressions. Direct accountability to other people, and I mean people here not in an exclusively human sense. Uh, direct accountability to other people means learning about the struggles that they face, which might be very different from our own. It means letting go of moral hierarchies in which there are good people and bad people in favor of being oriented to cooperative and mutually beneficial practices and relationships. It means a certain humility combined with a healthy self-respect that's based on the continual process of trying to build horizontal solidarities. So freeing ourselves from relations of domination involves not only a redistribution of material resources, it also involves a redistribution of emotional resources. Building a new world in the shell of the old means building new selves. And this is not easy. This is like rebuilding a boat while you're out on the water. But doing this can free us from the endless anxiety of the warlord at court and free us to construct relations that, with others that are authentic and meaningful to all. Thanks very much. Thank you for listening. To help others find Anarchist Essays, please rate and review us wherever you find your podcasts. And if you're interested in anarchist ideas, why not check out the journal Anarchist Studies? For over 20 years, Anarchist Studies has been publishing original research on the history, theory, and practice of anarchism. For more information, visit www.lwbooks.co.uk forward slash anarchist studies.